I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. In this episode, I'll be speaking to musical legend and all-round good guy David Arnold. You'll know David's compositions from films like Young Americans, Stargate and a series of Bond movies. And recently, David has been scoring Good Omens, the forthcoming TV series. I met up with him to chew the cud and talk about my own role in his success. And I played it to everyone and I, I put it into the into the mix. We did a mix of it and sent it to Doug and here we go. Like, this, is, this is brilliant. Now like Mark's in the show. <laughs> also in this podcast, a guest from the MK3D live show that I do at the BFI South Bank, the legendary Michael Caine. I know what this means. What does it mean? It means your hatred. And it also means losing someone that I have cared for since I first heard his cries echo through this house, but it might also mean saving your life. So, uh, welcome to this week's edition of Kermit on Film. I am very pleased to welcome to the podcast composer, musician, bon vivant, David Arnold. <laughs> David, uh, welcome to the podcast. You've been on the MK3D live show in... Uh, at the I have, South yes. Lake. One of the great joys of my life, that was. It was one of the great joys of the audience. Because you played for us, didn't you? You played... I did, yeah. It's not really such a surprise anymore. But, I mean, when I was growing up, I used to do a lot of playing and a lot of performing. And I think that's probably where I got to learn a lot of songs and like sort of classic catalogues um and i used to do it used to play in hotels and bars and pubs and mainly around luton and bedfordshire uh and uh that's an education in itself uh uh, uh, especially when dealing with then studio people afterwards you go well it's not as bad as that bloke in that pub that night um uh, and I used to do a lot and I used to sing for like three or four hours at a time just covers you know the same as everyone did now um recently you and i got in touch because you've just finished doing the music for good omens yes which is going on telly when well they haven't announced it yet but i would imagine it'll be the latter part of of this year on on bbc amazon have it first for six months uh and then i should i I think it's going to be like towards the end of the year uh, every sunday night one of those kinds of I mean, I'm saying Sunday night. No, no, sure, sure, sure. But it will be it will be at the end of the year, once a week on BBC. And it's based on the Neil Gaiman, and it's directed by Douglas McKinnon, who both you and I know. Yes. And we you got in touch because you you put on Twitter 
You're a very active Twitter user. Sometimes I wonder how on earth you get anything done in the day. It's been slightly less active the last six months <laughs> than I've been doing Good Omens. But it was one of those things. I mean, Good Omens covers so much ground musically. You I said mean, four and a half hours of music, right? Yeah, but it starts It starts at the Garden of Eden and it moves through like Noah's Ark, uh, the Crucifixion, the Roman Empire, French Revolution, World War One, 60s Soho, London, um, and ends up roundabout contemporary you know give or take a few you know years here or there um but there is so many amazing characters and so many storylines and the thing just like a juggernaut it kind of propels you forward through every episode and there's so much stuff is happening and and uh and and normally i don't like having lots and lots of music in it but this one feel it feels like it actually it needed to be a part of what was going on and it sounds like you've loved doing it I've absolutely loved doing it. It's one of those things where, luckily for me, uh, both Neil Gaiman and Doug McKinnon uh, liked my initial run at it uh, and then basically left me to do it the way I thought it should be done. There's a lot of discussion, obviously, you know, I mean, every moment was discussed. But once we'd had that discussion, it was like, okay, off you go. And and for me, I learned a lot from that experience because some of the time, if you're doing a film with a studio and you know that there are faceless nameless people that may drop you a note to tell you what you think about you know, what they think about what you've done yeah, yeah. you start having to sort of second guess well i don't know if that guy in that department might like it and the trailers guy might and marketing might want this and they might want this. you start having to you know you, you sort of cripple yourself by thinking about what other people's expectations might be and because this one is entirely pretty much neil and doug's you know show neil is show running it so he's ultimately the the, yeah. the, the final yay or nay sayer and it seemed to be the more extreme and the odder the better i mean when you have a story which is which is a fantasy anyway there are a different set of rules i think and a different set yeah. of circumstances and responsibilities i remember i got into trouble once with some it was i can't remember it was a group in america about me saying that i felt there was a a, a slightly different responsibility in writing the music about the slave trade uh for a film called amazing grace and it was about narnia yeah uh, about talking lion uh and um uh, and because obviously you know in christian faith narnia is a very important thing and i said but you know but it is still fantasy you know and i said this is real you know slavery is real still happens uh talking I, lines I know, yeah, it's fine um but i felt a different sort of responsibility to it and the thing about good omens is that it shoulders and and holds up so many different approaches um the trick was how can we make it coherent how can we make the thing a, a you know there is a enormous tent pole in the middle of this musically yeah. and everything else swings off around it um so it's establishing that initially what's our central thing uh and i got that fairly quickly and then from that all the other character pieces uh came but there was a moment where i mean i learned to play sort of tenor and different sorts of recorders for this and because you uh, are very adept at picking something up and having a go I'm, right? I'm, I'm adept at having i can take it to a certain level yeah. reasonably quickly yeah. but beyond that you're talking about 10 years of investment but that's time. like the john Le- either john lennon or paul mccartney who said i'm not a great musician but if you stick me in a room with a euphonium and give me half an hour yeah. i will get you a tune yeah. out of it yeah. and you have a similar which is give me a while and i'll get i'll get it up to a certain level i'll get it to a point where it'll be where good enough for what i need it for exactly so i or there's this there's eight bars of chromatic harmonica that i needed and um it was you know it's a quite a short amount of time yeah 
uh, and I thought I can do this. So I, I, I bought. I went out and I bought a reasonably good quality yeah. uh, chromatic harmonica. And I, th I went on Twitter and I took a photograph. Of it. I said, "I'm going to give myself 30 minutes to to, <laughs> to, learn, to, to, this. to learn this. Otherwise, it's not going to be a harmonica." <laughs> uh, and um, anyway, 30 minutes later, I, 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 unfortunately, the, the the first note was an inhalation with the bar in. Not that this means much to people yeah. that play harmonica, but it's a quite a tricky thing to get from that to the next note. Yes, uh, it is, especially if you don't know what you're doing, mm -hmm. which I didn't. So uh, anyway, I said, "Oh, this is a fail," and someone else uh on twitter said you should get mark camo to do it and you said i then tweeted you a picture of me playing the chromatic harmonica yeah. with the bbc concert orchestra yeah because would, i knew you played the blues harp yeah. i've seen you doing that loads and i thought well i didn't i didn't know that mark played chromatic harmonica it's a very different beast yeah. it's a it's you know the blues harp is like a fight and and and, and, and <laughs> a chromatic harmonica is like an opera isn't it i mean it's very very it's very different yeah um and so, anyway, so someone tweeted me thinking, oh, no, I didn't know he did that. Uh, and so I DM'd you privately. I said, actually, I'm not joking. I said, if you want to have a go at it, great. We saw it started out as a joke on Twitter. And then exactly. it's like, actually, no, I'm not joking. I said, if you can do this, it'd be brilliant. But, like, I need it, like, in the next sort of 24 hours. So I sent, uh, I sort of demoed it up and I sent, uh, I sent Mark over the track. And then, like, a, a day later, you went over to Ali's and, uh, went up into his belfry into his and, attic uh, yeah and, and sent it over I go this is amazing and I played it to everyone and I, I put it into the into the mix we did a mix of it and sent it to Doug and here we go like, this is this is brilliant now like Mark's in the show <laughs> so yeah so you're so in it it's there brilliant is, and yeah. it's me and John Hamm is that right is a scene with John Hamm uh, it's John Hamm uh, it's uh, someone who we're not allowed to say yet okay. uh, and uh, Anna Maxwell Martin who's Beelzebub yeah. uh, and David Tennant and Michael Sheen Wow. Yeah. I can't tell you how thrilled I am about it, because particularly since I had thought originally when you'd done that thing, you know, you were joking. And then and the other thing, when you said I didn't know he could play chromatic, because I couldn't play chromatic. The way I ended up playing chromatic with the orchestra was we were doing a concert with Robert Ziegler of music from the movies on Radio 5. And somebody said, uh, should we do Midnight Cowboy? And Ziegler said, well, we don't have a harmonica player. And I said, I can play harmonica. And he went, oh, all right, well, you can do it. And it wasn't until the week before the concert I discovered it's not played on a harmonica, it's played yeah. in a chromatic, because yeah. it's, yes. it's got all the semitones. Yeah. The whole thing with a harmonica, it's impossible to play the wrong yes. note, because it's only got yes. the right notes. Yeah. Chromatic has all the notes, including yeah. all the wrong ones. Yeah, you have one harmonica versus 12. <laughs> <laughs> but so, you have to know what you're yeah. doing with it. So yeah. from a standing start, I, you know, and it was terrible. I was convinced I was going to mess it up. Yeah. And in fact, I, I, I got away with it. As, but as, it was lovely, wasn't it? I mean, it was, it was yeah. lovely. And it's such yeah. a great tune that. I mean, yeah. it's one, I mean, the thing about John Barry's melodies as well is that they, it's, it's very often, if you're a singer, they're very difficult to follow. When they're yeah. instrumental, it feels very natural. Yeah. But when you, when you listen to the, the, the shape and the leaps of, in, the, in the melodies for the songs that he wrote, they're really really tricky yeah uh you know i mean goldfinger wah, wah, wah. it's not the easiest leap it's it's a little bit all over the place and yeah. not necessarily where you'd expect to go and that's the genius of it but the but the instrumental uh, uh you know i mean they're brilliantly played on obviously play, play written on a piano but um but that thing is just like a fearsome tune and, yeah. and, and, and a classic one for a harmonica. Yeah. I mean, that, that's about it, really, isn't it? I mean, well, yeah, there's that, but I did it and I got away with it. And then Ziegler sometime later said, I'm doing a concert uh, with Radio 3 at the, at the the Royal Festival Hall. He said, can you play Touche Pio Grisby? 
And I went, yeah, never heard it. He said, he said you know it. And I went, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, how hard can it be? Yeah. And then and then I listened to it. I thought, oh, hard, my God, that's got all the notes. That's literally not some of the notes. Yeah. That's literally got all the notes. And at least the thing with, with Midnight Cowboy is it's... Da, 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 it's a walking yes. pace. Yeah. Touche Pio Grisby is... But, you know, again... With enough of a following wind and a you know and a, and a, and enough front, I think. Although it was funny because after I did Touche Pargrisby and I thought, wow, I got away with it. This is genius. And then years later, I was talking to somebody, some a composer, and he said, oh, he said I heard that on the radio. Was that you? And I went, yes, it was. And he went, wow. I, I thought when I was listening to it, it was like listening to somebody learning to play the instrument on stage. <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm thrilled that you played Good Omens so, no, well, brilli- so yeah. brilliantly, and I would have no compunction in, in asking you to do something again, well, either. Well, You're now that, my go-to chromatic okay, harmonica. It's going player. on the top of my CV. This is the first thing, you know, first thing, played chromatic harmonica for David Arnold on uh, Good Omens. We talked before about the first uh, film that you did with, with Danny Cannon when you were yeah. doing Young Americans, yeah. and we talked about... You actually, you put that together with like videotapes and a creaky old, you know. Yes. Uh, and again, this that, that sort of DIY thing. I mean, I watched Young Americans again recently because it just it came out and some. It actually, it's re- it stands the test of time, doesn't it? It's a really great score, and it, the film still works. I, I, I've only ever seen it the once. I think just I the once. I, I, haven't, I haven't watched it again. I mean, there's a scene with an Irish wedding that I've got my dad in it. I mean, my dad's been dead like twenty odd years now, but but he's a he's the the singer in it, and and we named yes, have a name for the band in the credits, you know. And obviously, it wasn't. It's was just me, my brother on the drums, and a couple of friends uh, that I used to play in an Irish sort of functions band with, and my dad singing. Uh, and it was uh, what was the song we had? Terrible trad Irish song, a beautiful melody. Anyway, so there's a B side of a Peter Sellers single where Peter Sellers is pretending to be interviewing an Irish band. This is the first of a series of recordings of folk music. I'm speaking to you now at the time of recording uh, from a little village in Ireland where I am about to record the music of Mr. Patrick O'Shaughnessy and his Cayley band. Uh, uh, and he's German and uh, he's interviewing an Irish band and he's, he accidentally breaks their harp. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and this guy's going like, he's no, he's not, he's, I'm never going to get into heaven now. Mind my harp, will you? Anyway, they they were um, uh, the Rattling Bog Cutters was the name of the band on this on this Peter Sellers B side. So, so the credit for the uh, the credit for my, me and my dad's band in the Americans on the end titles is Padre Gilhooly and the Rattling Bog Cutters. So a slightly obscure B side. Probably George Martin produced the song. And Stargate was the first orchestral, is that right? Well, then we did have orchestra for uh, uh, for Young Americans, but Stargate was the first big, full, you know, sort yeah. of hundred minutes of uh, full on Hollywood style. And am I right remembering that you said that that there's a there's a version of the theme of Play Dead that you that was, it, it's literally the orchestra site reading it because you ran out of time. That is the version. Yeah, there is no other version. Uh, we were at, right at the end of the session uh, for the Young Americans, and it was a reasonably low budget movie uh low budget music certainly and uh (laughs) we had enough for like one session one three-hour session and um 
you know, as no normal with, with these sort of things, you know, the score when you're recording that is a priority, get all that covered. So the end title song, um, we had one run at it and we had, you know, we were three minutes on the clock because once you hit that, you know, once you hit the end of a session yeah. with Musicians Union rules, it's overtime. like it stops or you go into overtime and yeah. then you have to pay the whole orchestra again. Yeah. Uh, we didn't have the money to do that, so we knew we had to stop. So we had three minutes left. The machine that did the clicks to keep everyone in time had broken. We didn't have time to fix that. And they hadn't seen the thing before. So we just went into record and said, just play it. And so what you hear is those musicians sight reading it and playing it for the first time i mean there's a certain amount of energy that comes out of that uh there's a few dodgy notes you know there's a couple of horn splits and there's oh, an no. oboe part which is like you just couldn't fix and also it ended up winding in and out of time quite a lot so post the event when i was doing the mix with uh, tim simonon Kerry Hotwood, who was his programmer, uh, we had to sit there, I think, for two days, chopping it up into two-bar sections in an old Just sampler to try and get it to fit in time. Uh, but, yeah, but the performance was a sight read. I mean, the thing is, with British musicians, if you put anything in front of them, they will be, they they will be brilliant imme yeah. immediately. See, that, for me, is the difference between a musician and, I mean, you know, I've always been a bodger and I can't you know but for me I still think there's something magical I mean literally magical about somebody who is able to sit down and look at a piece of music and just play it without thinking and not not play it as an approximation but play it exactly as it's written with the emphasis and the you know I think that's part of the art of actually making film music work from a player when I did some I did some films in New York uh, I did Shaft and Stepford Wives a baby boy as well yeah. with John Singleton uh, in New York and the pool of players that you have in New York is very different to the pool that you have in Los Angeles at that time there were I think seven studios in Los Angeles there's only two now mm -hmm. uh, that worked with orchestras so there's an enormous pool of people who played on film music TV music every time you know when they would have all those big American TV shows that yeah. would record with an orchestra no matter how small uh, you know Dallas and Dynasty they would all record with a band uh, and in New York, it was slightly less so. So you tend to grab your in, your, your players uh, who are there. So they're either playing at Carnegie Hall or they're playing on Broadway. Yeah. And those sounds are very distinctive. And when you put those people together, you hear a sort of Broadway sound or you hear a slightly classical sound. And what's brilliant about the, the players over here and certainly in, in L.A. as well is that you don't have to do the work to make it sound unlike those things, yeah. you know, because to a certain extent in New York, we had to work a little bit to lose the, the the sort of Broadway or the classical sound to try and make it sound like film music. Because film music doesn't sound like classical music. I know a lot of people think it does because it's an orchestra, yeah. but it actually doesn't sound like it. I mean, it's very, very different. When we did Qu A Quantum of Solace, there's a scene in that film in the Bregenz opera where uh, I think we play some Wagner, is it Wagner or Verdi? I can't remember. It's, it's a, an operatic section. Um, and so there's score, which takes us into this on-stage opera yeah. sequence where Bond is, is chasing and shooting people around this giant floating iron quantum of solace. Uh, and it's a, I think it's a really effective uh, piece of cinema. But we just played a sort of big action sequence where they're all going dun 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 you know all this kind of stuff and we stuck this bit we go now we're going to do this how much more pipeline do we need ideally 2,000 kilometers are there any objections no not here 
No objections. Transfer the funds from our Siberian holdings. Done. Where do the Americans stand? Well, the CIA doesn't care about another dictator as long as they get their hand. But when they find out that they've been duped, I'm working on that. I'm still not sure that the Tierra project is the best use of Quantum's time. Perhaps we should shift our focus to the Canadian. This is the world's most precious resource. We need to control as much of it as we can. Bolivia must be top priority. Can I offer an opinion? I really think you people should find a better place to meet. That was virtually a sight read as well. I mean, it just the character changed absolutely immediately. All of a sudden, they were a classical orchestra because they needed to be, mm -hmm. and very like sort of shapeshiftery in that regard. I mean, that's what they say about and they say about a film composer. It's like someone who can sound like anyone other than himself, uh, and they and, and they and they do that quite brilliantly. They can play anything, and they like it when they're asked when they're pushed. So it's really interesting, actually, going back to Good Omens that. You know, it went from the 14th century to the 17th century to the 20th century to the future to heaven yeah. to hell. And uh, it's, it's fascinating watching them do it. And um, you kind of rely on them being that good, to be honest. Of all the scores you've done, what are you most proud of? Oh, God. Um, I'm, I'm proud of getting them all finished, to be honest. Because you're always up against deadlines and everyone always wants everything yeah, yesterday, right? Yeah, I'm proud of not having anything kicked off a film. You Have know? you never, you've never recorded a score that's then been done? No, dubbed, no, I've never which been is, Which I've is unusual because many people, that's, it's very regular, isn't it's, it? Whole scores get done and dumped. Yeah, it's not uncommon. Now, the, the, the dumping aspect of it, I think, would be reasonably upsetting, but I think more would be more upsetting was the amount of time that you'd have spent for yeah. what is effectively nothing. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it does happen a lot because... You know, if a film is struggling, one of the easiest things to replace is a score. Cool, yeah. um, you know, this doesn't feel exciting enough. Can you make it feel more exciting than it is? It's very rarely works, I think. Um, mm. You probably have more experience of that than I do. But um, I, I don't think it's usually a film's in trouble for a lot of other reasons. But it's one of the things that can help a little bit. Um, but, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know what I'm most proud of. I'm just, I'm just, I'm pleased that that I finish anything, to be honest. I mean, I'm just happy to wake up in the morning, so, <laughs> considering the alternatives. Uh, but, I mean, I was very pleased that, that Young Americans was done. But if you think about it, it's like, Young Americans, you think, well, maybe it should be the American Americans because it was the first one that I did. Well, maybe it should be Stargate because it was the first big American one that I did. Maybe it should be Bond because, you know, lifelong Bond fan. Yeah. The first so I don't know really I mean I don't get really sentimentally attached to, to them like that I can tell you what my favourite guitar is uh, <laughs> but I couldn't tell you what my favourite film is one of the things I think is, is really great about you David is that it's not just that you're you know you are a really good musician and a really brilliant composer and you've done it but you are you are one of the few people who can talk about it as eloquently as you can play. I mean I have seen so many talks by you in which you've sort of it's it's not just demystifying because it's not like you're saying it's nothing what mm. you're saying is it is something but it is something which is comprehensible yeah. and i have heard so many musicians really struggle to describe what it is about yeah. about music that that, that that works yeah i mean ultimately being able to talk about it helps to a certain extent with your conversations that you have with studio people or directors because there's the great mystery of music which is that no one knows why it does what it does mm. no one knows why you like a certain sequence of notes no one knows why 
when you put a piece of music up against a picture it feels like it belongs to it right that's a great mystery and it's a bigger mystery to us as it is to anyone else because if we knew how it would happen then you'd start a class and and sell it out you know there is no (laughs) trick you know and 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 there are a million ways to do it but i find that that the best way to 80% of this job I think is dealing with people and if you can pinpoint the reasons why you're doing what you're doing if you can get to the core of what it is that needs to happen for this film I find that most filmmakers look to their contributors uh, and collaborators as as problem solvers you know and the last thing they want is like well what do you want what do you want me to do they want you to come in and say i think it should be like this this is how i read this This is what i think this character is doing this is why when they do this right in this scene and then that happens back there there is something important that happens between these two moments and we need to follow that Uh, we need to follow that and um explore that and help it's a hand-holding exercise you know it's like it's like it's like with a child on a on a, 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 a on an adventure playground for the first time you know it's like they don't really know they, they know they want to get to the end they're not quite sure if they're going to do it without falling off <laughs> so you stand there holding their hand you go this bit's okay go a bit faster here but you know um and, and 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 i think being able to converse i mean i have to have this conversation with myself as well not just with with, yeah. with a director or a producer because i need to know the reasons why these are happening so it's a constant uh, a constant exercise in, in questioning uh and, and and being able to uh to to be uh reasonably eloquent about the positioning of those feelings helps with people who are slightly intimidated by talking with musicians because a lot of them aren't musicians yeah you know, the worst thing is for someone to come in and say, "Are you sure that should be an E flat on a on that clarinet?" Yeah, because, uh, <laughs> but it'd be better. I say, well, if you just talk to me emotionally, it's like, what do you want to feel about this? You know, the great Andre Previn thing, like no minor chords. You know that story. <laughs> no, what? One of the notes that Andre Previn got. This is why he called his book "No Minor Chords." He was in he was in a studio screening of a film, and whoever was the head of the studio heard it. And there was this cue came up with a scene, and he didn't like it. He goes, "What's that? What's that sound?" And Andre Previn said, "That's a minor chord." He goes, "No minor chords in this film." Um, there was another great story in that where he's, he was doing a movie about Martians, I think. And you know when you get these test screenings and people give you notes, and it yeah. came back, and one of the notes came back about a line of dialogue a martian wouldn't say that <laughs> and these are people who are meant to be guiding this thing through to completion and selling it to the world you know some of it's brilliant david uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's been an absolute joy talking to you i can't wait to to see uh, good omens when it's done uh, not least for completely self-aggrandizing purposes uh, it, it, we're doing the soundtrack uh, starting putting the soundtrack together so um, uh, well you you'll, know you'll be platformed gloriously th- th- that's 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 all i ever wanted david arnold thank you so much thank you i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on linkedin you'll miss out on great candidates like sandra start hiring professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com people today burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping and that extends to their outdoor collection 
Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. That was me talking to the great David Arnold. Now, a few months ago at the MK3D live show that I do at the BFI South Bank, we welcomed Michael Caine to the stage to talk about his new book, Blowing the Bloody Doors Off, and to reminisce about his life in movies. We thought you'd be interested to hear some of that. So here from that live show is the great Michael Caine. A couple of months ago, there was a release in cinemas of uh, My Generation, which is this very, very interesting film um, presented by Michael Caine um, about the 60s and how the world changed. Um, It's coming out on DVD on the 28th. Fantastic. Here's the trailer for it. Here's the trailer for My Generation. Growing up in London in the 1950s was predictable and dull. My generation demanded a new beginning. I wanted to be an actor from the age of 10, but people with my background hardly ever became actors. All I wanted was to get a true Cockney character on the big screen, and I got the chance to do it. The old rule book was being torn up and thrown away. Everything was dull and gray, you know, and we wanted color. The permissive society is considered by some youngsters to be trendy and witty. People try to put us It was the first time the future was shaped by young people. Just because we get around. They've got all these rules of how to live, and it's just not true anymore. You didn't hear models speak, but then you did. And they've never shut me up. (laughs) We must rid the country of don't care. Police raided Keith Richards' house. This isn't the first generation that's questioned the moral values of the last generation. It was our time. The best time of our lives. was it all about i'm going to show you i can't believe i'm saying this but please welcome to the stage sir michael kane Thank you. I was walking so slow, I thought the applause isn't going to last. <laughs> I got here as fast as I could <laughs> before you stopped. Can I get the, the obvious thing out of the way, just because I don't want to get this wrong? Sir Michael, my, how do you prefer to be addressed? Michael. Michael. Okay. Yeah, I do, every, everywhere I go, I, I say it's got to be Michael. Because uh, it. it it's great for me being sir, that's fine, but it's of no concern of anyone else, you know, they, they don't give a toss. <laughs> but are you... <laughs> has, it, has it changed you at all, do you feel, has it made you, has it changed you? 
No, no, it, ha it, has it hasn't changed me one bit. I, it, it was just wonderful to get it, and uh, the Queen gave it to me. And she, when, when I got it, she said to me, I have a feeling you've been doing what you do for a long time. <laughs> and I almost said, and so have you. Have you? <laughs> but I thought, you'll be in the tower. You won't get a bloody knighthood. You'll be in prison. So, Michael, tell us about My Generation, which is terrific. I mean, there's so much stuff in it. It's, you know, interviews and a fantastic archive and clips reel. Oh, it's amazing, the, yeah. the, 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 the archive. The, well, I mean, the movie was really made by the archivists because they, they really got it. You know, it, it's, it's fabulous and stuff. But for those but, who haven't seen it, tell us what it is. Oh, it, what it is, it's sort of my journey through the 60s. I, I, I grew up in the, in the 60s as an actor in the 60s. I became an actor in the 50s and had a very hard time and the 60s gradually changed and and the thing that changed it for us was the writers i mean starting off we look back in anger but that was in the 50s but then someone bill norton wrote alfie you know and, and the, the kitchen was another one and uh, um so many writers started working writing working class scripts and people forget that nobody has ever done that before in england we, we did, I did, a, I understudied Peter O'Toole in a play called The Long and the Short and the Tall. And it was about private soldiers. Peter became a star in that play. And that was the first play ever in British theatre about private soldiers in the British Army. Everything else had been officers. And it's the same, the same with, you could go right through the, the thing, like through to, to restaurants. You know, where, where would you eat if you're working class? You'd go to Lion's Corner House, the Elam Pie Shop, fish and chips or get a sandwich in a pub while everybody else was eating great well not great stuff because English cooking then <laughs> was a bit naff but uh, um, also of course in the 60s not only changed the music the style of the fashion the mini skirts and all that it changed the food because what you've got now is all these wonderful restaurants in London it's one of the best places to eat in the world and that came from the 60s none of these restaurants were here then none of them now, when you were doing My Generation, that you did many more interviews than are used in the film. And am I right in thinking that there's going to be a... a oh, yeah. In, in the film, I, I did... All those people you see, uh, and several others in, in the credits, I was Paul McCartney and, and, and Twiggy and everybody. Uh, um, we intervie I interviewed them, uh, and we tested it out in this movie. And what happened was, is when, when, it, when the people came on at this, this age now... The audience lost interest in the movie. They say, well, she's got fat, she's got thin, he's gone bald. He's, and, and there was all these conversations going on, and they'd been in the 60s. You, you will be in it when you see it, you'll be in it. And then suddenly they weren't, they were in the present time. And the only one they should have been in it was me. I would go in the door at 38 in, in Ipcris file and come out the other side looking like this, you know? <laughs> so, so you grew expected that, but you didn't want everyone, you didn't want other people to do that. So we, we cut all that. We, we left all the movie interviews, all of my interviews out of the, uh, the movie. And so we're going to do a, a TV series now, four episodes of, of uh, uh, the 60s, with, with my interviews in. One of the things I think is really good about the film is it has the energy of 
of its enthusiasm. I mean, it really feels like, I know you say it in the trailer, what was it like, well, come with me and I'll show you, but you do feel like it's a film made by somebody who urgently wants the audience to engage with this stuff. And it's, it's a passion project for you, yes? Oh, absolutely a passion project, because it changed my life. I was, I was a young actor, I was a cockney, and I was in repertory for nine years, uh, uh, learning how to do it. And I eventually came to London, and there was, I wound up at uh, the, the Communist Theatre, Joan Littlewood. Yeah. yeah, you know. And I, I'm not a communist, but I, I thought I'd better get some work. <laughs> I paid a rent, you know, so I went there. But what happened to me was rather strange with Joan Littlewood, because I was in a play, and I was rehearsing, and Joan suddenly stopped it, and she said, Michael, this is a group theatre. I said, I know, Joan, what, what, what are you talking about? She said, we don't want stars here. <laughs> and, I, and I didn't know what she... I said, I'm all part of the group, look, I'm, whatever you want, I don't, I don't mind, you know. And then she told me to piss off to the West End. <laughs> and she fired me for being a star in a group theatre. And I, and I, I, I went... I went to the, in, into the, I got a play eventually where I played a Cockney, a Cockney corporal, a, a Cockney uh, actor in a play. I played a Cockney actor who couldn't get a job, which is, I, <laughs> I, I, I was very good at it. And then uh, it's, it's, it's typical of that, that period, is it's that, Cy Enfield was going to direct a movie called Zulu and he came in and he saw this cockney and there was a part of a cockney corporal in the picture and he said come and do an interview he came back I said, come and do it I want to see you about this cockney corporal and I, I went to see him and, and I, I, I didn't have a telephone and when I got there he said I'm sorry he said I couldn't phone you you don't have a telephone I said no I don't so he said, well, we've, we've, cut, we've cast the Cockney Corporal. I said, that's all right. Because I'd, I'd, I'd even auditioned for Alfie in the theatre and been turned down for it, you know? So I knew what it was like. Uh, and as I was walking out, he said, can you do a posh accent? I, I said, I can do any accent. I've been in repertory for nine years, you know? I played everything from the butler to the lord. I said, it's okay. So he said, do it, and I did it. And so that's how I got my first big part in the movie. And it, it wasn't a Cockney at all. I was playing a very posh officer. Shall we have a look? Yeah. I think you better get them out of here. Are you giving me an order, old boy? Bromhead. Let's get one thing clear. I'm no line officer, I'm an engineer. I came here to build a bridge. Jolly lucky for you, eh? I mean, otherwise, you would have been chopped with the rest of the column, wouldn't you? All right. What's the date of your commission? Now, don't tell me. I suppose you have seniority. 1872, May. 1872, February. Oh, well. I suppose there are such things as gifted amateurs. If I'm Are you questioning my right to command? Oh, not your right, old boy. Never mind. We can cooperate, as they say. <laughs> The most, there were two things that happened to me on that movie. I, after we'd been in the movie a little bit, uh, uh, um, I'd, I'd copied, I, I was looking for someone with power. 
to copy, and I copied Prince Philip. And, <laughs> and Prince Philip always walked with his hands behind his back because he never had to do it. He doesn't have to open doors, he doesn't have to defend himself, and the powerful people make small movements. The working class do that to try and get your attention. The, the upper crust have their hands behind their backs waiting for you to open the door. You know, and, and when, when they sent the rushes back to, to, to Hollywood, they got a notice, it wasn't computer time, it was a telegram three days later, you know, saying a fire actor playing Lieutenant Bromhead doesn't know what to do with hands. <laughs> and then the second part of it was it was produced by Joe Levine. And uh, he had a seven-year contract with me, which I had to sign to get the part. And he called me up in, in, in his office and he said, Michael, he said, you know I love you, don't you? I said, yeah, Joe, I know you love me. He said, but I'm tearing up your contract. So I said, what did I do? He said, no, it's not that. He said, the people in Hollywood have decided that you look effeminate and you'll never make a leading man with the ladies. <laughs> and the next film I made was Alfie. <laughs> Can I take you back to slightly earlier in your career? I had to do an, uh, had to, I did a, an introduction for the BFI player an absolute snip at 5.40 a month um, <laughs> for the day the earth caught fire. And I had forgotten, because I'd seen it ages ago, that it's, it's an early role for you. In the oh, venue. yeah. I play, uh, uh, it did the one with Eddie Judd. A scene scene. Did you want to have a look? Yeah, yeah. Keep moving, please, down to the embankment. The road's closed. Can I get back on at the other end? Not tonight. This district's out of bounds. For medical reasons? No, there's some teenage kids kicking it up a bit. They lit a few fires, looted a bit of water. Where are you going, sir? Embankment Terrace. OK, let this one through. Thanks. If you see any of them, keep driving. They're either drunk or drunk. Great party. And stay clear of Chelsea. They say it's pretty rough down there. It always was, wasn't it? <laughs> it was Friday afternoon, the last day of shooting on this movie. I've been on it. This is the only scene I had. Yeah, yeah. And I came on and I was practically doing it in my pants with nerves. And I screwed up the first couple of takes, you know. And then, who directed it? Val Guest. Val Guest, yeah. And he screamed at me, you're never going to work in this business again. Because we went past six o'clock on the last day of shooting and they are all waiting for the party, you know. And then, and then he told me to fuck off. <laughs> so that was my first big partner movie. One of, the, one of the first films that, that I saw you in, it's weird because when, you know, it's, people see films at different times, but I saw California Suite when it first came out, and I, I, I loved that film, I absolutely loved it. And oh, want, she, she did, it was wonderful working yeah. with Maggie Smith. I want to show a clip from it because there was, it was one of the very first times that I can remember, well, I, my dad took me to see Zulu, and I introduced a screening of Zulu in, at the Empire just a year or so yeah. ago, a charity screening. And I said, when I was introducing, I said, the thing that this means a lot to me is my dad took me to see it. And everyone I met afterwards said, my dad took me to see it. It apparently was the film that everyone's dad took them to see. Really? Yeah, it was, I mean, like, literally every single person I met said, my dad took me to see it. My dad also took me to see California Suite. Yeah. And it was one of the first times that I can remember coming out of a film and quoting lines from it. And it's from this scene with Maggie Smith and you, which I think is wonderful and also lovely because it's not quite what you expect it's going to be. So this is from California. I imagine many of you have seen it, but I, I love this scene. My black pantsuit. Why the hell didn't I wear my black pantsuit? Because I am wearing it. 
We should never have come. I never know how to dress in this bloody country. It's so easy to dress in England. You just put on warm clothing. Why did we come, Sydney? Because it's free, darling. Glenda Jackson never comes. She's nominated every goddamn year. We could have stayed in London and waited for a telephone call. David Niven could have accepted for me. He'd have been bright and witty and no one would have noticed my hump. Use it, sweetheart. People will pity you for your deformity and you're sure to win. Maybe if you put your arm on my shoulder. Keep your arm on my shoulder at all times. If I win, we'll go up together. Your arm around me. They'll think we're still mad for each other after 12 years. No, I thought we were. I keep forgetting. How many gin and tonics have you had? Three gins and one tonic. Catch up on the tonics. We don't want to be disgusting tonight, do we? <laughs> I remember saying to the writer Neil Simon when we started to rehearse and get, I said, um, I said, Neil, would, would it be all right to, uh, during the movie if we found something funny to ad lib? So he said, if it's funnier than me, yes. <laughs> and we never ad lib once. <laughs> What's the first time I played a homosexual, actually? Uh, um, I mean, but it's it's a brilliant performance, and I, the thing that I quoted after it was with that thing that people will pity you for your deformity became like a thing that we said in in our house. And looking at it now. There's no cuts in it. It is. It's like a theatrical. But it's almost all done in. It's like two or three. Oh times. yeah, it was always very long, long scenes. Well, I think it was a stage play first. That's yeah. why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I like it now when they've got the, the, the digital cameras, and you don't go back. If you, if you fluff a big scene now, you they just say just go back two lines because they've got the whole thing. There's no rushes. There's no film. You don't stop to reload the camera. <laughs> So it's, you, you get massive long takes now because the, the, film, the camera can go for 50 minutes. Mm. You get massive long takes, but the great thing about it is is if you do screw up, which you're liable to in very long things, you just go back two lines and it's okay. The whole... It's lovely. <laughs> the whole setup. Is, too late. That, what? I was going to say, the setup there is to do with you know, Oscars and awards, and obviously you've had your fair share of them. Do they matter? Have they changed you at all? Oh yeah, I was so pr I was so proud to to win an Oscar. I I I, I was so happy. I um, and and I wasn't even there. I I I did a picture with Woody Allen called Hannah and Her Sisters, and Woody was very anti-Oscar. And on 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 the Academy lights, he used to go to the jazz club and play the trumpet or something. And, yeah. and, and he ignored it and, and was very nasty about it. And there was no publicity about it. Uh, 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 no one said, oh, I think Michael's going to be nominated for the Oscar for that. And it was nothing. And I accepted a movie and I was away. I was, I was, made making one of the, I was away making the worst Jaws movie. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. And I was making the worst Jaws movie, but uh, um, they offered me a million bucks for two weeks. And so I said, that's great. Because I was trying to buy a house for my mum. <laughs> and I bought a very nice house. Which I have seen, but I haven't seen the movie. <laughs> You've made um, a string of movies with Christopher Nolan, who is, you know, the very, very sort of forefront of modern cinema. I'm, I'm going to show a clip from Interstellar at the moment, but just before we do... He's always seemed to me to be phenomenally intelligent and erudite, and yet you and he seem to have a very personable relationship. 
Yeah, he regards me as his lucky charm. And I regard him as my lucky charm, believe me. Much more, I, he's more my lucky charm than I am his. Because just when you're coming at my age, you know, and when your career's starting to go down, he came along and gave me seven hit pictures. <laughs> and a percentage of Batman. <laughs> Is that a joke, or have you actually got a percentage of Batman? Yeah. So no more Jaws 4s for you? No. no. <laughs> I've got three houses. This is a clip from Interstellar with Amelia, be safe. Give my regards to Dr. Mann. Farewell, Dad. It looks good for your trajectory. We've calculated two years to Saturn. It's a lot of drama, me. Look after my family, will you please, sir? We'll be waiting for you when you get back. A little older, a little wiser, but happy to see you. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end, no dark is right. Because their words had fought no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. I'm playing a guy, a real guy there, called Kip Thorne, who, who found the black hole and, yeah. uh, and, and, and all that thing. And when I saw my office, he designed my office, and it was a very big office, and about this high, right the way around it, was an algebraic sum thing right the way around and, and I said can you solve that oh he said yes I know the answer to that and he, he knew that and, but a very funny thing about Kip Thorne he was a very very good friend what's, what's the name uh, Hawking the doctor Stephen in Hawkins. the wheelchair Stephen Hawking Stephen Hawking and, and he brought him to the premiere and I met Stephen Hawking you know and I was very pleased I, I was a great admirer of Stephen Hawking and he introduced me to Stephen Hawking Kip Thorne said to me um Stephen's saying something to you. I said, what is it? He said, I want to meet your wife. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, OK. And so I took him. We went into the thing, and I introduced him to my wife. And, and then I introduced him to Jessica Chastain and, and all these beautiful girls in the movie. And he never spoke to any men anymore. <laughs> He was just chatting all these birds up with a little bit. <laughs> you know it's a true story because you couldn't make it up, could you? Um, we're coming towards the end of the evening. I could honestly, I could listen to you talk just for hours. Um, I mentioned earlier. Tell that to my wife, will you? <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned earlier on that I remember, and I'm sure many people saw this, that there was this masterclass that you did on television about acting, about yes. the difference between... And I, you know, I remember seeing it, and I was never interested in being an actor, but I remember you very clearly doing this thing about explaining the difference of when you're on television, the, the close-up. Yes. Did you know when you were doing that? Did you think this is something that's going to be watched over and over and over again, or did you just do it on the hoof? Because everyone I know has seen that that masterclass. No, I was, I was at a... This is the biggest name drop you'll ever heard. I was, a, I, was at a, I was at a party at Rex Harrison's house 
for Liza Minnelli <laughs> and Peter, Peter Sellers. And they, they had just, it was a sort of funny, when she found out that uh, this, the, the story was over with her and Peter. But uh, that, was, that was part of the evening. But then, then Marlena Dietrich turned up. <laughs> and I was introduced to her. Uh, and she looked at me and she said, you're supposed to be a star, aren't you? I said, yes. She said, well, why are you so scruffy? She said, you've got to dress better than this. She said, so, 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 so oh, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. She said, but let's eat, let's eat, she said. So I said, oh, okay, we'll eat. I said, it's a buffet, we've got to go up. She said, you get something for me. I said, well, I, I don't know. She said, well, get whatever you get, get for me, the same thing. And I did, and she ate it. But while we, 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 we were sitting, she said, I saw you in Alfie, and you don't know what to do with your eyes. I said, what do I do with my eyes? She said, you, first of all, you blink too much. Stop blinking. You must never blink unless you're playing someone weak or someone who blinks. <laughs> and <laughs> she said, and you also keep one eye for the camera. Now, I'm looking at you, yeah. right? And now I'm supposed to look at your two eyes. Okay. The camera's there looking at me. I look at you with that eye. Right. I'm still looking at you with this eye, but the camera's got this eye. If I do that, the camera's got that. If I do that, the camera's got that. That's, and she told me that, and that's what you were talking about in that thing. Marlena Dietrich. <laughs> Just to drop her name again. But it's, it's strange about, I mean, one of the most incredible things that I heard, like you, you don't expect, you know, Marlena Dietrich knows all this stuff. But the most incredible one is Hedy Lamarr, who invented Wi-Fi. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't yeah. believe that. That's a superb documentary. I, yeah. I mean... Bombshell, a brilliant yeah. documentary. Yeah. Uh, oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah, really, really great. Yeah. Did, did I ever tell you I met Angelina Jolie? She liked my hair. <laughs> I mentioned it only in past. No, did, did she like your hair? She did. She said, I like your hair. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, the magnificent Sir Michael Caine. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for downloading this Kermit on Film podcast. If you've enjoyed the podcast, then please do subscribe. If you want to get in touch with feedback or questions, go to Twitter. I'm at at Movie. Thanks for listening. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.